This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and center. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. But it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioral challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You are listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is running to the airport to book it to Amsterdam for the World Aviation Festival. Uh, he'll be reporting from there tomorrow, so that's exciting. And with me then for the hour is Christine Aquino joining me over in the UK. Well, this was a lot of di- this was a lot to take in uh, over the last 48 hours. So we have European stocks up five percent. In about two days, the Eurostox 50 was up 4.26% today. Volume was also pretty solid. Um, Yields lower, dollar lower, and that all helping risk assets as well. The why, I don't really know. ECB, Christine Lagarde, talking about how inflation is still quite hot. There is massive confusion in UK politics. There is massive confusion in how to battle higher energy prices and what a cohesive way that would look like uh, for the Eurozone. We're going to get to all those stories uh, throughout the next hour and look ahead to Jobs Day on Friday with the Jolts data also causing some confusion, I should say, or interest uh, within the market today. Christine, it's a lot. You guys got a lot going on over there. It is a lot, Alex. My neck hurts from all the whiplash <laughs> in UK politics, in central banks and monetary policy, and everything that we've just seen in markets. As you say, it's really been a lot of U-turns in mm-hmm. every which direction. And it's it's a very interesting time, I think, and on several fronts here. Um, and all of it is, of course, related, right? What we're seeing in UK politics specifically, very much a function of the reaction in markets that we've seen, especially over the past uh, few days. Days or so. Yeah, at some point you make a lot of U-turns and you're just doing a circle. I mean, let's be honest, you're not driving anywhere. Um, all right, we're going to get to much more in the next hour. Here's Charlie Pellet with some headlines for Hi, you. Hi, thank you very much, Alex Steele. Here's what's going on. The UK said to be in talks with Norway to secure a natural gas contract of potentially 20 years and a bit to stave off the risk of winter blackouts. A source says ministers are discussing a price with their Norwegian counterparts because of the length of the contract under discussion. That carries the risk of locking Britain into a high cost of energy for two decades. Liz Truss's government is worried that persistently high American interest rates could cancel out the benefits of her program of deregulation and low taxes as she attempts to transform the UK economy. Sources say officials are hoping the US will ease off on its aggressive path of interest rate rises after November's midterm elections. Meanwhile, Truss says she has yet to decide whether welfare payments in the UK should rise in line with inflation an issue that threatens to spark another bitter dispute with disgruntled conservative members of parliament. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. All right. Thank you so much, Charlie Pellet. So as all of this is unfolding in the UK in terms of politics and the U-turns that we're talking about, there's also uh, the Tory party conference that is unfolding as well. Um, There's lots of questions as to whether welfare payments and pension payments will be indexed to inflation or indexed to salary increase among many other things, and how public spending might be cut as well. Um, Here's Liz Truss uh, talking, the Prime Minister, uh, about some of the issues facing the UK. It was becoming a distraction, so that's why we immediately changed that policy, and that's the kind of government we are. We do respond when there are concerns, and we act quickly. 
Liz Truss, uh, Prime Minister of the UK, talking. And she's talking, of course, about scrapping the scrap on the 45% uh, tax rate that was the U-turn today, yesterday. And the U-turn today potentially has to do with pension funds and welfare payments, uh, like I mentioned. Well, Bloomberg's James Wilcock uh, joins us from the conference to give us an update. So we're confused, James. We just are. Christine was talking about whiplash. What are people saying on the ground? I mean, you think you're confused, Alex and Christine. I mean, her neck hurts. My legs hurt. I've been running after MPs and ministers all over. I think what is starting to happen here is unity is starting to break down. Um, We have had a number of ministers briefing off their books. Like, Suella Bravman, the Home Secretary, has been saying that it was wrong to, like, scrap the scrap, as Alex (laughs) referred to it, and says, like, it's been a betrayal from inside the party. That is completely off message with what quasi Quateng said yesterday and what Liz Truss has said about like you know bringing things in and listening and that can only mean that like things are starting to erode and that has happened because this U-turn this sizable U-turn has weakened Liz Truss's position in the party and the question now is what how does this change this agenda that we're still waiting to hear about about these very spending cuts that you referred to so, James, how unprecedented is this really? What you're describing was happening on the ground seems to be really not something that a newly seated prime minister would want, especially at a conservative party conference, which in a lot of ways, this could have been a victory lap, but seems like it's co- the complete opposite at the moment. I mean, we're used to turbulent politics here in the UK over the past six years. We've had four prime ministers, Christine. I mean, you've been watching the pound as long as I have. It goes up and it goes down. It's becoming incredibly volatile. What is changing, I think, is this policy was something that was repudiated by the market. It was a policy that was discussed about four weeks, and it was the flagship policy of the prime minister. That is new. To have it happen so soon into like her sort of era, where she's only trying to set up her flag, like her new stall, that is different. And to have it in a party that's been in government for 12 years like that is unusual too it puts people a lot in mind of like when John Major was in charge before the Blairs, and that is what is worrying a lot of the Tory MPs here they look at the polls they look at the fears of the market and they go mm-hmm. This reminds us of when we last got kicked out of power. Which also then brings me to the pension and and welfare payments. So it it seems like what's unfolding is that pension fund payouts will be linked to inflation, but welfare payouts will be linked to what salary increases are. Is that palatable for the party as a whole? That's a really good question. The, The difficulty is, is what is palatable and also what is known is still very much up in the air. We as journalists are all trying to figure out where Liz Truss is drawing the lines. She has talked a lot about the NHS under her tenure, so that's something where we think the money might be going. And she has talked a lot about protecting pensions. She hasn't mentioned mortgages as well, Alex. So, And the Tory party is like the party of homeowners. Mm-hmm. So this debate as to whether like they will actually help the poorest and also homeowners where the money will be saved we simply don't have the details. But the issue with benefits in particular is it is an increase that comes in automatically with inflation. So to change it, they would have to pass it through Parliament, which as we're finding out in this conference, Liz Truss cannot be confident yet that she commands the support of all of her parties. So doing that will be difficult. So James, I mean, what we're hearing, at least according to some of our sources in government uh, through our Bloomberg reporters, is that essentially it seems there's a sense that even before she starts carrying out all of these reforms and, and all the campaign promises that we've heard uh, on the trail, uh, Liz Truss may have already lost or is starting to head down that path of losing that support. And uh, it may unlikely uh, be getting anything done during her very short tenure so far. Do you get that sense? 
sense uh, just kind of being in the conference and on the ground speaking to people there? I mean, for your listeners in sort of America, I want to set the scene here. Like, this is a conference where you're supposed to be sort of at the heart of your support. Liz Truss has just won an election of her peers in the party. These are the people who elected her. This is supposed to be like the calm oasis where she can just say what she wants, say what she thinks, be with her friends, meet everyone who, like, likes her. But I think the thing, Christine, is what we're realizing is politics is a very, very bloody business. And when they sense weakness, that kind of calm oasis can really be filled with piranhas. And that's what we're kind of seeing in this conference. They are starting to tear chunks out of each other, come up with their own policies, go off the hoof. And that's mm-hmm. kind of the confusion and chaos. How markets will react to that is a really open question. That imagery is brilliant, James. Uh, thank you so much. Love you reporting from there. James Wilcock joining us uh, from the Tory party conference. Uh, Christine, some breaking news here. Um, a red headline crossing the Bloomberg terminal that Elon Musk has said to propose to Twitter to proceed with the deal at $54.20. Twitter shares are now halted. They busted higher, up by about 6%. Uh, Tesla shares paired their gain. No shocker there. I don't talk about whiplash, Christine. Talk about whiplash. <laughs> There's going to be more to come, Alex. I'm going to prepare my neck now. Getting Seriously. a neck brace. I mean, what was all the brouhaha? If we're just going to go back to the 5420. Um, all right, we'll try and get you an update on that and the headlines uh, as they cross. Um, coming up, um, we are also going to talk more about the UK budget uh, with Mel Stride. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Listen to The Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Christina Kino uh, is over in the UK. We were talking about the whiplash in the market. Now we can apply it to Twitter, too. That headline, of course, that uh, Elon Musk is proposing now to Twitter that they go through with the deal at 5420. We'll get you more headlines as they cross on that. Um, so the Tory party conference, as we mentioned, is underway. Uh, Lizzie Burden's been on the ground, also doing a lot of great reporting for us. And she spoke to Mel Stride, chairman of the Treasury Select Committee. And she asked whether the recent action when it comes to scrapping the scrap of the 45 percent tax rate is enough to restore credibility for the government. Well, I think it'll certainly help, Lizzie, provided that, of course, this uh, plan and the OBR forecasts that are brought forward actually are seen by the markets as being credible and therefore calm those markets, put less pressure on interest rates going up, which, of course, will be very important uh, for those who have mortgages uh, up and down the country. But it really depends on the detail within that forecast. But the fact that it's being brought forward is very significant because if it is a, a a credible forecast, uh, the markets see it that way, um, It and it comes before the Monetary Policy Committee meeting on the 3rd of November. It was originally going to be three weeks after that, but if it comes before that, that of course will also uh, help uh, inform the decisions that committee makes, and one might assume also soften the base rate move that the MPC comes up with uh, compared to what they would otherwise have done. So a positive move all around. So we've had a U-turn on the top rate of income tax. This seems to be a U-turn on the OBR forecast. Where do you stand on uprating benefits in line with inflation? Could that be the next U-turn? It's conceivable. Um, There will be tough choices to be made and they will be broadly fleshed out in that forecast that we've just discussed. Um, you've got to remember that well, the welfare upgrade uh, last April uh, was relatively low because it's pegged to the previous September's inflation rate, and that was quite low. So we're already starting on benefit uh, upgrades from a fairly uh, low base, as it were. And I think within the parliamentary Conservative Party, uh, it's going to be quite difficult, I think, uh, to go for an earnings-based increase this time round. 
rather than inflation. Um, so I think, yes, that could be quite problematic. You're a Conservative MP, but you're not here in... Why not? <laughs> well, uh, nothing sinister to be read into that. Um, I basically took a decision many months ago uh, that for personal family reasons, we were going to do something uh, around this time. So it's certainly not a case of uh, in any way boycotting uh, what's happening in Birmingham at the moment. OK, tries to get out of that one. Good for asking, Lizzie. Uh, Mel Stride, Chairman of the Treasury Select Committee. So we unpacked a lot there. And the one thing we didn't really hit on is potentially moving forward uh, the fiscal plan for Quasi Quartang um, from the end of November. Christine, I guess from where you sit, like, what's the biggest question that everyone seems to have on the ground now? Well, you know, it's funny, Alex, we were talking about how the whiplash hurts uh, from all the U-turns, but at least from the market's perspective, it didn't seem like the initial U-turn was going to be enough to really sustain a recovery in a pound. Yes, we are back above 115 at the moment. That's $1.15, but that's that's a lot, a long ways down from where we were earlier this year, Mm -hmm. which is, what, above 130 even. And so, you know, I think the, the consensus at the moment is that, yes, it was a good initial start because at least it's a step back toward fiscal responsibility and also um, uh, just keeping an eye on UK finances. But potentially, markets might need more for the trust government to really just restore that destroyed credibility, as you mentioned. Looking at the FTSE 100, though, up by 2.5%. Now, granted, that that could also be due to external factors, etc. But I have to wonder, too, like, if if we have no new bad news, <laughs> is that enough to stabilize, say, UK assets in general? Maybe not the gilt market, but maybe the equity market. Potentially, yes. I mean, I think at this point in time, the equity markets in particular have really been so battered. I mean, they haven't necessarily gotten the benefit of that much, much weaker pound because then investors are incredibly concerned about the UK's exposure to, um, for instance, uh, this potential energy crisis that's looming over us. So, you know, any lack of bad news could potentially be enough and be Mm -hmm. considered good news. Right. And we talk about, you know, everyone's like, oh, it's so cheap and valuation. Granted, valuation's not enough to buy, but no less bad news? I don't know. Um, Okay, the other wild card, of course, is what's happening uh, over in Europe and Ukraine. War, we'll get the latest. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Uh, Guy Johnson's catching a plane. Christina Kino uh, joins me now over in the UK. So something happened to me that was quite interesting, Christine. So I'm, uh, we get a car service in because I get in so early. And as I'm talking to the driver, he brings up Ukraine. He's like, what do you think is going to happen? Um, do we think that there's going to be a peaceful resolution? How long do you think it's going to take? We're talking about nuclear deterrence. And usually when that kind of vernacular gets into everyday uh, vocabulary, I'm like, OK, we must be at some kind of tipping point. Yeah, that's really interesting, Alex, because, you know, it seemed like uh, while a lot of interest was, of course, on the situation earlier in the year, that seemed to have faded over the summer and it kind of seemed to become more of a background issue. But yeah, you're absolutely right. I think now that it's kind of making perhaps a bit of a a comeback in uh, just everyday conversation, you get the feeling that there seems to be a bit of a turning Mm -hmm. in the tides. Yeah. And then the more successful Ukraine is, what that winds up doing to Vladimir Putin. So there's really only one person we can talk to about this, and that's Bloomberg's Rosalind Matheson. Uh, She joins us now. She's actually in Brazil covering the elections there. So we can talk about that in a moment as well. But, um, Roz, the conversation about, you know, nuclear deterrence 
is picking up steam. And I wonder, is there enough nuclear deterrence and pushback from the West to contain a potential fallout from Putin doing something drastic as the Ukrainians make advances? Well, that's the question. As you notice, you noted, of course, that Russian troops are under severe pressure inside Ukraine. They've suffered extensive losses uh, in the east and now increasingly in the south also. And as his campaign really goes the wrong way, what does that push Vladimir Putin to do? You can see that he's already pressuring Europe very heavily on the energy front, on gas supply. Uh, he's trying to use that as a lever. But does he end up resorting to even more drastic tactics as the war goes on and continues to go against them. So the question does become, uh, having annexed these territories in Ukraine and declared them Russian territory and saying he will do all means necessary to defend it, as a result, he does give himself the lever to use a nuclear weapon, a tactical nuclear weapon, on the ground, uh, if so. But at the moment, what we're not seeing is any sign that he's moving those assets into position. He would have to actually pull those tactical nuclear weapons out of storage. There's no indication that is happening doesn't mean that it won't happen but for now he's leaving them where they are but he's certainly picking up the rhetoric on it and that's alone raising tensions obviously within Ukraine but also within Europe and the US about if he did something like that how on earth do they respond? Well, Rose, very interesting that you mentioned Putin's rhetoric, because it seems like there's quite a contrast between that and what we're actually seeing in the ground, which is that the response from Russians uh, to Putin's call to join the army really has not gone down well. I mean, we're seeing uh, scores of Russians fleeing the country rather than joining um, the army and kind of shoring up the ranks uh, there. And so where does that leave Putin in, in terms of his ability to actually um, continue this? war when uh, the reception at home is not that great. Well, certainly, you know, interestingly, more Russians seem to have fled the country than the 300,000 that he's seeking to mobilize out of the reserves. But it's still a very big country, and there are a lot of men of fighting age that he could call upon um, or, or essentially sort of co-opt into fighting his war. Um, he hasn't, he's, he's done a partial mobilization. He could still do a full mobilization, essentially shut the Russia border entirely and grab a lot more people. So he does have uh, bodies he can put into the conflict. How much they would be able to affect things on the ground is another matter entirely, but certainly he seems to be taking the approach if he could just slow Ukraine down and slow its troops down. As we get into winter, the terrain gets a lot muddier. It's going to become a lot difficult, a lot harder for Ukraine to make continued gains. And then you end up with a frozen conflict uh, through until the early part of next year. So perhaps just having enough people to put into the fight allows him to slow it down, uh, regardless mm -hmm. of the large numbers of Russians who are clearly not wanting to go there and are trying to leave the country. Um, Ross, like I mentioned, you're you're down in Brazil for the elections there. And before we get to it, you know, what is the international reaction or feeling about the Ukraine war right now? Well, it's interesting because, as you noted, as time goes on, it's been difficult and increasingly a challenge for Ukraine to continue to get that unity and that level of support. I mean, you're still getting countries in the U.S. and Europe sending a lot of weapons in, continuing to supply them with financial aid. But already there's a debate growing within the EU, for starters, about how much further financial aid to send in, what that aid looks like, what are the conditions potentially attached to it. And, of course, these countries are also running very low themselves on supplies of weapons to send in. And they're very careful. They don't want to send in sort of NATO standard weapons like tanks and fighter jets because that could just provoke 
let him move Putin even further. So their own stocks are running low. And as you get into winter, comes the question of, well, do you need to support your people at home first and prioritise that in terms of energy supply versus supporting Ukraine? So there's still a lot of, you know, sympathy for Ukraine. A lot of people are very shocked by what's going on there. And certainly they're hopeful that Ukraine is slowly turning the tide of this war. But in terms of tangible support, that's the sort of thing that over time is going to become much more challenging. And you can see that from the government in Kiev. They recognise that's the problem and they're trying very hard to keep up the momentum. So given that that is a kind of the international attitude towards uh, this uh, war that keeps raging on, do you think that it's completely too optimistic what we heard from one of the advisors of uh, Ukraine President Zelensky saying that the war will probably be over in months rather than years? Is that just too optimistic at this point? Well, certainly the advantage seems to be with Ukraine at the moment. I mean, incredible scenes of Russian troops retreating in the east of towns that they've been occupying for months. And now the offensive picking up speed again in, around Kherson, which is a really crucial area in the south. But the going there has been a lot slower than elsewhere. And Russia's been pushing reinforcements into that area. Uh, and so you can, the going will be a lot tougher there. Uh, Ukraine will be very hopeful that they can somehow... Uh, get the advantage in this war and finish it sooner rather than later. But Putin's made very clear with his rhetoric, his mobilisation, his annexation. He's not going anywhere easily. He doesn't intend to pull out. And so Ukraine will have to push him out. Uh, And that's feasibly happening in the short term. That's a very difficult challenge, even through the Ukrainian army being as successful as it has been. Uh, Roz, really great analysis. Thank you for doing that. While you're also in Brazil covering the elections, we'll have to co- uh, have you back and dissect that as well. Roz Matheson uh, joining us from Bloomberg. All right, coming up, pivoting to the U.S., we got Jolt's numbers out. Is it good news, bad news, bad news, good news? We'll get the breakdown. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is catching a plane going to Amsterdam for the World Aviation Conference. He'll be reporting live from there tomorrow. Christina Kino joins me now from London. Um, let's check, a, check in on U.S. markets here. So stocks are recovering from some serious oversold levels at the end of last week. And we're seeing two days of, days of gains. We're looking at potentially 6% upside for the S&P in just two days. Yields lower, dollar, dollar lower. That's also helping as well. We also got a U.S. job opening sinking to a 14-month low. We'll try and peel back the onion on what that really means in just a moment. But let's get you some other headlines with Charlie Pella. Hi, thank you very much, Alex Steele. Here's what's going on. We begin on this side of the Atlantic. Elon Musk is proposing to buy Twitter for the original offer price of $54.20 a share potentially ending one of the most contentious acquisitions in recent history. Musk made the proposal in a letter to Twitter, according to sources who asked not to be identified. Shares in Twitter climbed as much as 18% on the news after trading was briefly halted. Right now, Twitter is up by about 12%. There are still few senior minorities at large UK companies, according to a new report by the accounting watchdog. Although top management acknowledges the need for change, This according to the Financial Reporting Council, which published a report today finding there are still significant barriers to ethnic minorities reaching senior corporate positions, despite some improvements since the Black Lives Matter movement gained visibility starting in 2020. 
Far more Russians have fled abroad than have enlisted in the military since President Putin announced a mobilization to bolster his faltering invasion of Ukraine. Russia's defense minister says more than 200,000 people have been conscripted uh, conscripted into the army since Putin's September 21st order for a partial call-up that matches an exodus of more than 200,000 Russians to neighboring Kazakhstan alone in the same period. This according to numbers from the Central Asian country's interior minister. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. All right, Charlie Pellet. Thank you so very much. Okay, so let's get back to that Joel's data. So it came in right at 1 million. We were looking for about 1.1 million. So overall, you're looking at the lowest level since June 2021. The read-through is that the labor market is loosening. So what does it mean? Mike McKee, Bloomberg International economics and policy correspondent, joins Christine and I right now in the New York studio. Um, Okay, so is it like, yes, this is what the Fed wants to see? Is it bad news, good news then for stocks? Is it good news, good news for stocks? Um, (laughs) A lot of questions It's multiple choice. Uh, First, got to add a zero to your numbers. It's 10 million, not 1 million. But um, jobs. Oh, yes, I do need to add a zero. (laughs) Sometimes uh, those commas are hard. But these these things are, I mean, yeah, it's a a period in in Europe, Mm -hmm. so. Um, the question, I mean, a, a comma in Europe, a period here. Anyway, um, the this is what the Fed expected to happen. It's pretty much what everybody expected to happen coming out of the pandemic, that people would get jobs uh, and fill the openings. It's taken much, much longer than anybody anticipated. And now you're looking at reasons why that include uh, the retirement of the baby boomers, which was underway anyway, but then seems to have been accelerated by the pandemic. And the number of people who were still at home because they didn't have child care, they were sick themselves. There's a big, long COVID population. So uh, we did expect that there would be a shrinkage. Uh, You described it well. It's cooling, not cold uh, at this point. It's what the Fed wants to see. Is it good for stocks? Uh, This is two-month-old data. These openings corresponded with 315,000 jobs being created. So if we got the same kind of numbers next uh, Friday, uh, then it isn't going to make a difference to the Fed. What Joel says, it's going to continue to support their view that there's a lot of openings, and that means the labor market's tight. So, Mike, you know, earlier we were talking about this on TV, of course, and, and you made the excellent point that there is still so much room for the Fed to essentially take the heat out of the labor market, and really the process is only beginning. So, I guess the question is, how far do we need to see um, this uh, process go within the labor market to finally convince the Fed, all right, you know what, it's time to pivot, as we say, and and start thinking about scaling back this rate hiking process. The labor market's not going to be determinative for the Fed. It's going to be the inflation figures, and we get the new consumer price index next week. Uh, That's got to go down for several months in a row before the Fed starts thinking about stopping raising rates. They're still going to raise rates. They might do so at a slightly slower pace. But uh, the jobs numbers would have to really be a significant change for the worse for the Fed to consider uh, lowering its uh, the s- speed of its rate increases because at this point it's all about inflation. So when you talk about how quickly though the jobs market can shift, Anna Wong of Bloomberg Economics was talking about this earlier on TV that what we have learned is that the job market can re-rate really fast. 
And then if and this is basically companies being like, we're just going to hold off maybe on hiring as we see rate hikes come through. Could things happen a lot faster than we think? I suppose, but I don't anticipate that. And the reason is hmm. it normally takes longer than it has now. Uh, and a much more significant economic downturn. Employment being a lagging indicator, companies don't want to let people go, especially now because they had such a hard time finding people. So they're going to really want proof, evidence that their business is no longer justifying the level of employment that they have. And that's going to uh, follow retail sales, uh, business spending, that sort of thing. Um, We know we're seeing an impact in real estate, but there's not a lot of people in those jobs, but we're seeing mortgage brokers laid off. So it's going to take a little while until uh, that happens. The other problem for the Fed is nobody really knows the dynamics now of the economy because everything that we thought we learned uh, went out the window in the pandemic. So something could happen very quickly, as it did with the pandemic, or it could play out like a regular recession and take a while for employment to catch up with uh, other indicators of a slowing economy. So, Mike, markets have done their thing, do what they usually do, and really just try and front-run this uh, potential pivot, right? Um, Despite the fact that uh, the hard economic data doesn't necessarily support doing that at this point in time. Uh, But what we're seeing, of course, is the pairing of of Fed rate expectations as well. I think at the moment, pricing is for that terminal rate to come through around March of 2023, but at a much lower peak than perhaps what we saw over the last couple of weeks. Do you think that makes sense, or are markets in for another rude awakening here at this juncture? Depends on your trading horizon. If it's a week or two, <laughs> sure, it can make sense if you're just uh, sort of turning things over. But the idea that the Fed is going to start a pivot anytime soon mm-hmm. uh, is is not going to happen. Uh, they're going to want to see several months' worth of data, and they're going to stay on track. They may change the speed limit, but they're going to stay on track to get above 4%. Uh, right now, we've seen it, the terminal rate in the futures market come down to 4.3 from 4.7, but that could easily change on Friday with the jobs report or next week with the uh, CPI report. Does, uh, do, does uh, the JOLTS report today justify a, a 3% gain in the Dow Jones Industrials and the S&P mm. 500? Uh, that, it, that would, it would be hard to make that claim, but people don't like losing money. They mm-hmm. want to see the end of this, so they're hoping. As Guy would say, this is this is a market that wants to be bought. Yeah. Uh, that that the upside for that. Um, but you also argue this is a buy the rumor now, sell the news when it comes to Job Friday. Um, okay, good stuff, Mike. Thanks a lot. No doubt you'll be with us like every day. Mike McKee, uh, Bloomberg International Economics and Policy Correspondent. All right, coming up, back to that breaking news at the top of the hour. Uh, the Twitter deal could go through for Elon Musk. Uh, we're going to get the breakdown from Ed Ludlow. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. All right, good evening. Listen to The Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York, Christina Kino over in the UK. Let's get to Twitter here. Uh, so Musk apparently is proposing to proceed with the Twitter deal at 54.20 a share. Twitter shares are halted, news pending. Let's get to Ed Ludlow right away on the news. What? Yeah. That's what? my question. What? What? <laughs> According to sources, Elon Musk has sent a letter to Twitter. And he proposes to proceed with an offer to buy Twitter at $54.20 a share, 
which is the original offer price from April. So we are back to where we started. What? Talk about whiplash. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're you're doing the whiplash over there. Go ahead. I mean, joking aside, right? Musk had made kind of three clear attempts to walk away from this deal. You know, it, it seemed he got buyer's remorse essentially, and his argument was that you know the platform was not what he thought it was. The level of bots on the platform was much higher than he was originally led to believe, and after he had made that original offer price, that Twitter was not operating the business in a way that stuck to the original terms of their deal. But as we headed closer and closer to the trial date, which had been due to be October 17th, I think the market was increasingly pricing in odds that the judge, the chancery judge, Kathleen St. Jude McCormick, would hold him to the original terms of that deal. The burden of proof for him to prove a material adverse effect. In other words, that Twitter did something that blew a big old hole in the deal would have been very high and very difficult for him to to be successful in. Okay, so Ed, try and channel uh, your inner Elon Musk here, and, oh, and let's see if we can work out. Let's see if we can work out the thought process, right, of basically going back to where we started with all of this. Uh, I mean, what is kind of what 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 could you hazard a guess as to the goal of this latest move from Musk? Is it uh, just to kind of write himself in terms of a public perception, or perhaps a perception uh, of the court in terms of this deal? What, what is the end game here? You, you know, it's a fair question and it, it's impossible to answer. I always have the caveat that I have no idea what's going on in Elon Musk's head and I'm not sure that anyone does, a friend or, or someone less familiar with him. Musk is and has been for some time one of the most active and, and well-followed users on Twitter. And we know from the court filings, which included text messages he exchanged with Jack Dorsey, for example, uh, Twitter's uh, co-founder and former board member, that Musk believed Twitter could be something greater than it actually currently is. And it was his belief, according to the text message exchange with Dorsey, that taking Twitter private would allow him to enact the changes necessary to fulfill this kind of bigger vision of what Mm -hmm. Twitter could be. Um, That is what we know. But, you know, he had this concern that there were too much, too many fake accounts, too many bots on the platform. And that's kind of what the thrust of his his determination to walk away was in recent weeks and months. So do we get the sense that this is an Elon Musk that is bitter and angry at having to make this deal and spend all this money? Or do we get a sense that it's an Elon Musk who's resigned and like, okay, let's get to work? Again, a very good question. All we can go off is what Elon Musk has said publicly. Um, He has said on stage and in tweets, even uh, since his attempts to walk away from the deal, that he felt he could make a difference for Twitter. I remember on stage with John Micklethwaite at the Qatar Economic Forum, this was after he had thrown some pretty big doubts on the deal. He said, actually, I've got some great ideas for Twitter. I think I can really improve it. That's not something you say if, if you think you're going to, if you're going, mm-hmm. yes. And if but you this think this is you're a rational walk- interpretation. Right. And, and all we can do is try and have a rational interpretation. But, you know, I think, Let's also think about the market's perspective, the merger arbitrage perspective. Mm -hmm. The market believed, and specialists in M&A believed, that Musk would not be successful if he went to court. He was due Mm -hmm. to be deposed today, I believe, in Texas. Parag Agarwal, the CEO of Twitter, was due to be deposed. Monday, I think it went ahead, behind closed doors, of course. And as we moved closer to October 17th, there's a chance 
that he realized he couldn't win. Mm-hmm. So and just to get in front of it. Right. Yeah, on his terms, apparently. Um, okay, that's the latest whiplash here and you turn here at Bloomberg Radio. Thanks, Ed. Really appreciate it. Ed Ludlow uh, joining us on uh, Twitter and Musk. And Twitter, a stock is still halted. All right, coming up, you got oil prices up over 3%, $91 a barrel for Brent. We'll break down OPEC Plus tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Christina Kino is helping me out over in London. Let's get to the commodity market because I can and I want to. Um, the headline that broke a couple hours ago is that OPEC Plus is looking at a 2 million barrel of oil a day cut tomorrow when the delegates meet uh, for the first time in person in about two years. Brent now over $91 a barrel. There's really no one else to talk to but Fernando Valle of Bloomberg Intelligence. Okay, Fernando, first of all, what's your model for what OPEC Plus could do tomorrow? I think they will continue to put pressure on prices, but it's a lot more rhetoric than it is factual. Um, when you look at their production quotas, they've been underproducing their quotas very significantly at near record levels. And so when they talk about potentially cutting production quotas, it means next to nothing, unless Saudi Arabia and the UAE actually take action and cut their own production. But then what 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 happens to their to their revenues and to to their fiscal balance? Um, those are the two countries that can effectively cut, and everyone else is not able to do anything. So, Fernando, can you walk us through kind of the potential undercurrents that are informing this uh, potential decision that we're going to get tomorrow, possibly? But, um, I mean, how much of this is um, the various countries kind of reassessing at this point? You know, whether they've made enough oil revenues this year, how much of this is being informed by their assessment of demand, for instance, from countries like China, who we know, of course, is a big customer of, of oil? Well, I think if you ask them, they've never made enough revenues from oil. They can always make more. Um, There is certainly some reassessment uh, because of the Chinese economy. And to us, that's the biggest risk for 2023. In the short term, though, you know, we think there's very limited effect that they can have for the remainder of 2022. The market is really being governed by uh, what's happening in Europe and uh, and in the in the U.S. in the fight against inflation, uh, central banks hiking rates, and then the recessionary fears because of elevated uh, electricity, energy prices in general in Europe that threaten to 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 derail the economy. And then you take that into China, as you mentioned, and, and their real estate sector. I, I think that's the fear for 2023. But um, I don't think that they consider it too much uh, right now because China, um, they just liberated exports of refined fuel products. So theoretically, they might be embarking in another crude purchasing program that has been a little bit slower to begin 2022. So when you talked before about the paper versus a real cut in essence, like the paper cut is what you say, but really they're already not producing their quota versus a real cut where you're taking oil off the market. If it's something like two million barrels of oil a day, some of that's going to be real. If it's half a million, that's not real. That's paper. Yeah, absolutely. But again, who does that? And it's all the Saudis. It really. has to be Saudis, and mm-hmm. and then you know, twenty two million barrels. It's is over twenty percent of their production. Uh, it's uh, over forty percent of their exports, mm. and that has very real significances for their uh, for their export and, and current accounts. I, would you do that just as you see a recessionary environment globally? I find that hard to believe. 
I think you know it's still a pretty good price at eighty, ninety dollar um, Brent. You're still making pretty good revenues. Uh, if you rock the boat too much, and we saw what happened, uh, you, you threaten to, to uh, thwart demand, and you threaten to uh, encourage uh, governments to look away from you and, mm. and for alternatives. So, Fernando, I know you mentioned that, of course, the bigger context to all of this is, you know, we have a bunch of central banks trying to control inflation and raising rates everywhere. And seemingly that's that's really taking a toll, at least on uh, consumer and economic sentiment, even if not the actual economic data. And then you add, of course, the potential reaction uh, in oil markets to this cut, which is, of course, again, higher oil prices. I mean, that that is not going to be good news for all of these central banks and all of these economies trying to do their best to grapple with inflation as it is, no? Uh, absolutely. And I think it's actually has the potential to be worse uh, as we come into winter. Uh, when you look at the the aftermarket, the gasoline and diesel side, the diesel side in particular looks very, very perilous to us. Uh, inventories in the U.S. are very low. Uh, and diesel is a key component for heating and power generation as an alternative to natural gas. So as we go into winter, uh, it, it really... There's a potential that diesel cracks can explode even higher. Today, they're already near $50 a barrel, uh, over 50% of the Brent oil price. But you know, if we go to a, a point of shortages, then that could be much higher and much more painful for everyone in New England that relies on it for heating and power, uh, agriculture, uh, and even industrial uses as well. Yeah, and that's what's so crazy about this whole scenario is that we're talking about an OPEC cut into an already tight market. Exactly. Like look, just looking at physical inventories. Yes, and when you look at natural gas, you know, natural gas from Russia can't be re-exported if it's not going to Western Europe. It's not like oil that you can take a longer route around to India and China. You have physical limitations in moving natural gas, and if that needs to be replaced, it will be replaced with fuel oil and diesel. You know, there isn't enough coke, coking coal, uh, and 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 that in itself uh, can be another source of demand for for liquids and obviously for diesel. So we have, of course, the group meeting starting tomorrow. What other wildcards are you watching out for, Fernando, apart from this potential decision and an output cut? Well, I, I think, again, if it's how that's split. If it's, if it's concentrated in the UAE and Saudi Arabia, then there's more teeth to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the second part is how they, they handle their own uh, production, uh, for their own consumption. So, uh, obviously, we're also ending the, the, the cooling season in Saudi Arabia. So, they theoretically would export more. They have less uh, burn for their own power needs. Uh, so, they would export more. So, a cut wouldn't necessarily mean a significant cut to exports, mm-hmm. as long as it's not the 2 million barrels a day. I mean, that in that case, you can't avoid cutting exports. But if you cut 500,000 barrels a day from Saudi, you're not really making a dent on exports. And again, it's a lot more show than it is actual uh, fact. Yep. The market likes it. Up 91.50 is where we're trading for Brent. Fernando, thanks a lot. It's always good to catch up with you, Fernando Valley, for joining me from Bloomberg Intelligence. Like I said, Brent uh, up a uh, 2.5%, uh, $2.5, I should say, to over 91. Christine, thank you so much. Please sub for Guy anytime. It's an absolute pleasure. I may not let Guy back on air. Just watch out. I mean, I feel okay about that. I mean... <laughs> He might not, but we'll see. I think I think we're all okay about that, apart from Guy. I think I think he will be joining us though tomorrow from Amsterdam. He's going to be in his football stadium 
which is basically the World Aviation Center. Uh, we'll get the latest from him there. Christine, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. You've been listening to The Cable. Have a great night. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.